Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with geologist and author Albert C. Hine about where Florida has been and where it's going. No one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently. We'll discuss the Jim Woodruff Dam and what's beneath the lake it created. The lake itself destroyed a lot of really important historic and prehistoric cultural sites. And we'll talk about Irish history in Florida starting in the 16th century. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Florida used to be in Africa. Florida also used to be located at the South Pole. As part of the continent Gondwana 650 million years ago, the foundation of Florida was tucked between the land masses that would become South America and Africa. The rest of Eastern North America was then part of another continent called Laurentia. As the Earth's tectonic plates shifted, the basement rocks of our modern continents moved across the globe. About 300 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia collided, forming the Appalachian Mountains in what would become North America and the Maritonide Mountains in what would eventually be Africa. The Florida portion of Gondwana joined with Laurentia at a line that runs southwest to northeast through modern South Alabama, South Georgia, southern South Carolina, and eastern North Carolina. By about 200 million years ago, Gondwana and Laurentia had sutured together to form the supercontinent Pangaea. At this point, Florida's basement rock was located north of the equator, much closer to its current position, but was surrounded by land. Florida was near the middle of the Pangaea supercontinent, far from any ocean, probably surrounded by desert. Pangaea did not last long from a geological perspective, breaking up after just 85 million years. The breakup of Pangaea resulted in the creation of Florida as a peninsula. Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida and author of the book Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Form the Sunshine State. The basement rocks underneath our feet right now, probably where we are here in, in southeast Florida, are close to 6,000 meters beneath our feet. Those are crystalline igneous and metamorphic rocks um, that were composed of both the African continent and the South American continent, and, and um, were fused together uh, at one point in time forming a megacontinent called Pangaea that existed for several hundred million years and broke up about 200 million years ago into the uh, continental fragments that we see today. So North America separated from Africa, South America separated from Africa, uh, Europe and Asia did their own thing, India uh, broke away and, and, and slammed into the south side of Asia creating the uh, uh, Himalaya Mountains. And so it was a period of time where 
there was a significant reorganization of the continental masses on, on Earth. And, and during that time, the uh, basement rocks beneath the Florida Peninsula, created the Florida Peninsula, were isolated and, and, and left alone. And, and then on top of the basement rocks, the limestones have accumulated that we see and, and the rocks that we, and sediments that we see that form our beaches uh, have occurred over the past 200 million years. For tens of millions of years, most of Florida was separated from the rest of North America by the Georgia Channel Seaway. Eventually, the water receded and Florida became a visible extension of North America, but with a distinctly different foundation than the rest of the continent. The Suwannee Basin and the Florida-Bahama blocks that make up the foundation of the Florida Peninsula have much more in common with the rocks of Northwest Africa than with the bedrock of the rest of North America. The Florida platform is a structurally bounded geologic feature. Um, it, there, there are structural boundaries called faults, and there are uh, different types of faults. The east side of the Florida platform actually is part of the Bahamas, so was, the Florida and the Bahamas were joined at one time. They've separated uh, uh, since they were uh, first, first created as uh, continental pieces separating from Africa and South America. So there's a large fault there. Um, there is a large fault in North Florida, South Georgia. Uh, it's a different type of fault. There is another fault uh, that defines the western boundary of the Florida platform, and that's a, even a different kind of fault, where the Florida shelf uh, and slope steps off into the deep Gulf of Mexico. It's the escarpment. It's about a 1,500-meter high escarpment. Drill down, you find that there's actually a fault there. It's inactive. And then south of us, where Cuba is, there's a series of thrust faults. And, and so the Florida basement rocks have been defined as a distinct geologic piece of the crust of the earth as a result of these different faults. At different points in geologic history, Florida has been totally submerged, but it has also been twice as wide as it is now. Prehistoric animals and probably pre-Columbian people lived on dry land that is now submerged under 200 feet of water in the Gulf of Mexico. Albert Hein. During glacial events, the huge ice sheet, it's called the Laurentide Ice Sheet, uh, covered most of uh, North America. And the Fennel-Scandinavian Ice Sheet covered most of Europe. And water was extracted from the ocean and, and, and um, snowed on land. And that snow never melted. And so over thousands of years, that snow built up into thick ice sheets. And um, so water was withdrawn from the ocean as much as 400 feet. So sea level dropped about 400 feet, 130 meters. And so uh, as a result, Florida being topographically low and flat, that exposed a huge portion of the Florida platform to the air and became dry. And so we've mapped uh, paleo shorelines out onto the shelf, the shorelines that are, which were at the coastline. There was land, there probably animals and maybe even pre-Columbian people lived out there and uh, it's now 70 meters, 200 feet underwater. Albert C. Hine is also co-author of the book, Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. He says that rising sea levels are an inevitable part of Florida's future. It's a function of global warming and global climate change, but global warming. And, and um, I realize, scientists realize, of course, it's been politicized. There are a number of things in science that get politicized to our chagrin. But the data are real, and the models are as best, the predictive models are as best we can possibly make them, and they're getting better with time, and that's been demonstrated. But all that clearly shows that sea level is going to rise in Florida in time periods that are important to humans, not thousands of years or millions of years, but in decades. And as a result, we have to 
you know, start to plan how we're going to deal with that. And as we're planning, we, we continue to try to make the science better, try to make the predictions better. And as time goes on, those predictions might change, and therefore our response to those predictions will change. Those predictions are likely to get worse rather than better as time goes on. Many Florida cities are already seeing extreme drainage problems related to rising sea levels. At this point in time, no one's saying we have to evacuate the entire state and head for higher ground, but we're already starting to see effects of streets that are perennially flooded, or frequently flooded, and they become flooded more and more frequently, and pretty soon they'll be flooded all the time. And we reach a point where, well, what do we do? And front yards become soggy, and pretty soon they go underwater. What do we do? And, and so there's going to have to be a, a political will economic will to deal with that situation. People can't live in situations or environments where their front yard is always underwater. It's dangerous and, and uh, the land isn't worth anything. And, and certainly uh, the flood insurance industry isn't going to provide flood insurance. And so that's just one small example. Uh, those properties will probably have to be consumed by uh, government. The people that live there will have to be compensated and, and that land will have to be put to other use. Because Florida is mainly flat, with no striking geological features above the surface of the land, people often have the misconception that there's not much to geology in Florida. Albert Hine knows that is not the case. Well, that was my you know, conception when I first came here. People think of geology, and I did too, uh, something in your face, like the Grand Canyon, or, or like Yosemite, or the Himalayas, or some spectacular, even New England. Uh, it's mountainous, and, and, uh, or, or the Blue Ridge, uh, uh, the Appalachian Mountains. And, uh, but Florida's low and flat, and so the geology's beneath our feet, and so it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. But in fact, Florida's got just as interesting a geologic history as any other place, as far as I'm concerned. Perhaps not as spectacular from a scenic point of view as the Grand Canyon. The Grand Canyon is a, a world-class by itself, in my opinion. But nevertheless, the, um, the story of the geologic history of Florida is something you couldn't make up, and it involves collisions with Cuba, it involves drownings, it involves uh, strong currents passing over the Florida platform, uh, huge sharks that were 60 feet long, and, and uh, so Florida has got an amazing very interesting geologic history, but it's all on the subsurface. And so we have to drill holes and or we use remote sensing, geophysical remote sensing techniques to try to determine what's beneath our feet. From using coquina rock for construction to using phosphate for agriculture and munitions to using Florida's many beaches for recreation, people utilize Florida geology in a variety of ways. Geology controls our lives, whether we know it or not, realize it or not. In Florida, uh, we can start with the beaches. That's, those are geologic features, for sure, and, and they have geologic histories. The modern coastal system is about three or 4,000 years old, and so there's a geologic history there. How did it form? What was there before 3,000 years ago? So I would say the beaches are probably the most prominent um, component of Florida's geology that people see. In the middle of the state are phosphate deposits. Phosphate is a mineral, or a mineral family that contains the element P, phosphorus, and that's used in fertilizers. So it's essential in growing food. So it's not a strategically important um, geologic commodity like oil and gas or chromium or some of the rare earth elements that we put into computers. But nevertheless, we mine it in Polk County and Hendry County and central peninsular Florida to a significant degree. It, there's about six or 8,000 people involved in the phosphate mining industry. So it, it, it employs a lot of people. 
And it's a uh, product that we export, and so it is a component, I can't tell you to what degree, but a component of the state's economy. Um, just b basic rock, the limestone rock itself is used uh, in cement, and you see it in the facing of, of old banks and buildings, and so we use uh, geologic products uh, almost every day in our lives, we just don't realize it. Albert C. Hine is a professor of marine science at the University of South Florida. He's author of the book, Geologic History of Florida, Major Events That Form the Sunshine State, and co-author of the book, Sea Level Rise in Florida, Science, Impacts, and Options. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of Florida Frontiers radio and television programs, subscribe to our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, most people are probably familiar with the Hoover Dam, but there's some smaller dams right here in Florida. Yeah, that's right, Ben. And even during the colonial period in Florida, there's evidence of small farms utilizing rivers to power sawmills and other production facilities. But it really wasn't until the 20th century that these damming projects were popping up all over the southeast, several of which are actually in Florida. And one of those is called the Jim Woodruff Dam. And that dam is actually on the border of Jackson and Gadsden counties at the very northernmost portion of those counties with the state border with Georgia. And it's actually at the confluence of two large river systems, the Chattahoochee and the Flint River, that flow as far north as Georgia, the very northern border of Georgia around metropolitan Atlanta, all the way down to the border with Florida they come together and they form the Apalachicola River. And that river system that's called the ACL is a fairly large watershed and it feeds all the way down to Apalachicola Bay and eventually into the Gulf of Mexico. And it's right at that confluence of the two rivers where they become the Apalachicola River that the Jim Woodruff Dam project was actually completed in the 1950s. And as I said, this was part of kind of a broad movement within the South, at least, to create these small-scale hydroelectric dams to service the rural communities around northern Florida. And the Jim Woodruff Dam was named for a businessman, a Georgia businessman, James W. Woodruff. He was actually a radio station owner and became very interested in these types of rural infrastructure programs. He was part of a chairman of a committee actually in Georgia to build several of these smaller dams along different river systems. And he was lobbying the federal government for money. And then in 1946, uh, the U.S. Congress actually allocated enough money to build this dam. And the dam itself is fairly large. It's about a mile wide, the concrete impoundment at the southern end of the reservoir where the Apalachicola River starts. And it's about 1,000 feet into Florida. So most of the dam itself sits within Florida, but part of it is actually right on the border with Georgia. So it's kind of a shared use between the two states. But the dam itself is about a mile wide. Although if you travel to the dam today, you can really only see a small portion of the water control gates that are above the surface. Most of the infrastructure is below the surface. And as a result, you know, when you build a dam, you end up holding back water. 
and these dams form reservoirs. And the Jim Woodruff Reservoir, which was later named Lake Seminole, is an enormous lake. It spreads mostly into Georgia, further north up the Chattahoochee and Flint Rivers, covers about 37,000 acres, and actually created 375, just over 375 miles of shoreline. So it's a tremendous body of water that was just literally created between 1952 and 1957 when the lake was actually opened and became Lake Seminole. The project cost, it was supposed to be about $29 million, uh, ended up being about $46.5 million, which is not uncommon for these types of infrastructure projects. But unfortunately, you know, when the, especially when the reservoir was created, the dam itself isn't that large. It has a fairly small footprint. But the lake itself destroyed a lot of really important historic and prehistoric cultural sites that are now essentially buried underneath the reservoir. And Ben, you have a report here on some of those historic sites lost to the lake. Yeah, that's right. I pulled a report from the uh, shelves of the archive. It's called Historic Sites in and Around the Jim Woodruff Reservoir Area, Florida, Georgia. And this was published in the 1950s, actually under the auspices of the Smithsonian Institute, their Bureau of American Ethnology. And it was written by Mark F. Boyd. And Boyd is really kind of a, a preeminent Florida historian. He published dozens of books, many journal articles in the Florida Historical Quarterly, and was actually involved in the Florida Historical Society for several years. In fact, this report was co-sponsored by the Florida Historical Society and the National Park Service. And this report was really drafted with one real goal, and that was to try and very quickly, before this reservoir filled up with water, to record as many historic sites in some prehistoric sites as possible. But you have to keep in mind, in the 1950s, archaeology as a science was still sort of developing, so we didn't have the same type of technology, we didn't have the same types of, of techniques. So really, they were relying on the historic record. So when we look through this book, you can open up to the table of contents, and he has it broken up into two sections. Part one, historic sites that will be submerged in the reservoir, and then part two is historic sites adjacent to the Woodruff Reservoir, which was later named Lake Seminole. And there are four sites in particular that Boyd thought was worth at least going into detail and doing some kind of field investigations, one of which was called Fowltown. In Fowltown, it was actually the name given to about four or five different Creek Indian towns in the late 18th and early 19th century. So one of those towns ended up, unfortunately, underneath the lake. Another was Sabacola, and this was probably one of the earliest historic sites. This dates back actually all the way into the late 17th century and was at one point an early Spanish mission site. And that was later used by various indigenous groups up into the 19th century, and actually until the U.S. took over Florida in 1821. They also have a, a seminal reservation site, one of the earliest U.S. federally mandated reservation sites, Iconcha Timico's Reservation. And this was set out in the 1820s as part of the Treaty of Moultrie Creek. And then lastly, they have Fort Scott. Fort Scott is a really important historic site. It figures prominently in the Western Florida Wars, the First Seminole War, the invasion of Jackson. In fact, Andrew Jackson actually spent time at Fort Scott. It was only occupied from about 1816 to 1821, but played a really pivotal role in the U.S. acquisition of Florida. So those four sites, these are only four, and it's really just a small sampling of some of the historic sites that unfortunately were submerged and, and destroyed. Now, Boyd goes into some detail looking at what they found when they actually went out into the field. 
And this is one of the sites. This is actually Fort Scott. And under condition, <laughs> the only notes he has here are obliterated. <laughs> now, unfortunately, this site had actually been in, in private ownership. So it had been used a lot of the fields and where some of the earthworks would have been for the fort site had been leveled previously. So by the time the clearing crews came in to wipe out all the trees for the reservoir, most of the site was already gone. They did some archaeological excavations, they did pull some sites, and they actually found some very early pre-Columbian pottery and other artifacts. But unfortunately, again, given the amount of time, that stuff was just covered up. So we may have lost, you know, quite a bit of that, our understanding at least of the people that lived at this very important region of North Florida and Southern Georgia. But, you know, that's uh, unfortunately the product of modern civilization and the need for electricity. It sounds like there might be some great opportunities for underwater archaeology. And the Jim Woodruff Dam is, of course, still in use today, right? Yeah, that's right. Although, you know, originally in the 1950s, when they sold the idea of a dam, there were a lot of people who were against it, not only local residents, but folks who had used this area during the historic period and and were concerned for environmental reasons. But one of the biggest selling points was that it'd be used for navigation. Well, today, it's really not that often, you know, used for boat navigation. It's really primarily used the lake itself for recreational purposes. So for fishing and hunting and duck hunting and things like that. And there are several state parks and federally designated wildlife reservation areas around the area, but it's not really used for the same navigation purposes. And more recently, too, there have been some other issues, some people calling actually for the dam to be taken out because of that environmental impact. We have issues with the lake filling up with invasive species and there are other problems, too, because the, the two rivers that feed into where the dam is actually built at the Apalachicola River, they're part of the greater Atlanta metropolitan area, which is drawing a lot of that water. So during times of drought, the dam itself really isn't producing that much electricity. So there are some other problems there, too. So, so we'll see. Again, it, it's had a kind of an interesting, fairly short history, but it's built on top of a much longer and really fascinating history and prehistory. Great. Thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To find out more about the Jim Woodruff Dam and see the report we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. People of Irish descent have been in Florida since the 1500s, Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science, and has this report. In the 16th century, the promise of riches in Florida drew the Spanish and the French. Not long after, the British arrived to seek their fortunes as well. Among the earliest Europeans in Florida were also Irish missionaries and soldiers serving in the Spanish army. When Spain achieved a permanent settlement with the founding of St. Augustine in 1565, The Irish banded together with them, due in part to their shared religion, Catholicism. Archaeologist Sarah Miller is the director of the Florida Public Archaeology Network's Northeast Region and the South Central Region. She told me about the history of the Irish in Florida. Well, you know, I live in St. Augustine. We always like to be first for all this stuff, and uh, we can claim the first Irish in what's today the continental United States, who was Richard Arthur, Ricardo Arturo. He was a native of Limerick. He came here to St. Augustine in 1597. He served with the Irish Brigade, and he had done studies in Spain as well, and he died here in 1606. 
we know this from the parish records and from work done by Michael Francis and their digitization um, project. Irish history runs deep in Florida. History professor Dr. J. Michael Francis from the University of South Florida recently found documents in the General Archive of the Indies in Seville, Spain, indicating that America's first St. Patrick's Day took place in St. Augustine long before Boston, Massachusetts. St. Patrick, or San Patricio, was Ireland's patron saint who lived during the 5th century. Sarah Miller. It's just really exciting to be in St. Augustine and looking at the Irish history that we have here. Michael Francis uncovered some documents uh, a couple years ago that if translated properly, you can say we had the first St. Patrick's Day parade here in St. Augustine in 1601, where they had for San Patrizio a parade in town. So that gives us this nice continuity going all the way back. Those who gathered to honor St. Patrick in the streets of St. Augustine in 1601 would have included Spanish, African, Native American, Portuguese, French, German, and Irish inhabitants who marched together in honor of the Irish saint. Irish priest Richard Arthur was likely responsible for the St. Patrick celebration in St. Augustine in 1601. During the Second Spanish Period between 1783 and 1821, the number of Irish-descended Florida residents increased due to Spanish land grants offering large tracts of land to anyone willing to cultivate it. Many of those taking advantage of the opportunity to own land in Florida were mercenary soldiers, including the Regiment of Hibernia, Irishmen who had volunteered to fight for the Spanish king and take Florida back from the British. One thing I didn't realize until getting into this area of research was just how many Irish served in the Spanish military because they were Catholic, because they either went to a seminary in Spain or England was your enemy, enemies becomes your friends, so they end up being distributed all over the world. Wherever the Spanish went, the Irish were with them. And many of our Spanish governors were Irish at that time, which is really kind of shocking to think about. You think, where you read the names and you assume on a preliminary read that these are Spaniards that are taking these high posts. But they're born in Ireland and lifelong military career men and families, and then they get distributed. So, you know, St. Augustine, Florida, Pensacola, anywhere there's a Spanish fort, there were likely Irish down to Puerto Rico, down to South America. You know, the sun doesn't go down on the British Empire. I'm sure that was true for the Spanish <laughs> Empire as well. And there were the Irish there with them. Evidence of early Irish settlement in Florida can be found beyond St. Augustine. Irishman George Fleming arrived in Spanish East Florida in 1783. He received a thousand acre land grant from the Spanish governor of East Florida for his military service and in 1790, he established a plantation called Hibernia, Latin for Ireland, on an island on the St. John's River that's known today as Fleming Island. If you go to Fleming Island in Jacksonville, where the Fleming family, they were related to the last Baron of Sloan in Ireland, and they came to Florida and settled and there's a really very charming family cemetery in Fleming Island that has all these Flemings. So when I was on a tour in Ireland and they were showing us the castle of Sloan and saying they don't really know where the Fleming family went after they left Ireland, I'm raising my hand. I'm like, I know, <laughs> they, they went to Florida, Fleming Island, Florida. So there's just really unique pockets of Irish history 
even, you know, of course, outside of St. Augustine. The Irish connections to Florida are still strong today. There are Irish festivals, societies, and gatherings throughout the state, and Irish pubs can be found in almost every community. Nearly 500 years after it was first celebrated in the city, St. Patrick's Day is still one of St. Augustine's most popular celebrations. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen to the program as a podcast. You can find us anytime online at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Please continue to stay safe and healthy. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.